Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on August 20th, 2021. Ari Miller is the Director of Design at Hinge Collective, a public interest design firm that puts community engagement and public participation at the forefront of their practice. As both a landscape architect and arborist, Ari has always advocated for the integration and restoration of natural systems in urban design. Over the course of his 17 year career, Ari has worked as an arborist at Morris Arboretum, as a green roof design specialist at Roof Meadow, and has also led large-scale civic design projects at Olin Partners. At Hinge, he uses the experience to help communities find design solutions that best support human and ecological health in their own neighborhoods through the enhancement of public space and community-led planning. Ari has also been adjunct faculty at the Weizmann School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania and Jefferson University. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Ari. We're delighted you can be with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Hal and I were talking when we were discussing having you on our show today, and uh, we wanted to find out a little bit about your company and how it got started, the Hinge Collective. So uh, we are, Hinge Collective is a, we call ourselves a public interest design firm. Um, All of the work that we do has a community engagement component. Um, I'm a landscape architect and an arborist, and uh, my partner is is an architect. And so we're we're primarily focused on designing in communities that don't often get a lot of focus. One of the things we like to say is that we, um, we, we, we like to design excellent places for every neighborhood um, and every zip code. It started as a passion project because we saw that there weren't a lot of people that were working in, in neighborhoods that were outside sort of the big civic centers. We saw a need for quality design services that really brought dignity and a high design focus to neighborhoods that were often overlooked, that were outside the big civic centers. Uh, Alexa, my partner, and I have have been sort of doing pro bono work in these spheres for quite some time before we broke off and started our own company. But you know, we we really saw that there was a there was a gap. Both uh, both my partner and I started in sort of more traditional practice, and we we had done a lot of pro bono work through um, the really excellent uh, community design collaborative uh, here in, in Philadelphia that that organizes design professionals in the area. Uh, to support nonprofit organizations for upfront design needs. After working on a number of those projects, we found that there needed to be some more follow-through, really, uh, to be able to get those those projects turned into reality. We were really passionate about having those places actually become become real 
And uh, it started, you know, our company really started with a small project that is in the Frankfurt neighborhood of Philadelphia. They really, they needed help getting that project from the concept phase all the way through construction. They hired us, uh, well, they hired Alexa, who had just actually left the design collaborative. Uh, she had been working there for a couple of years uh, on a play space initiative where they were looking at helping organize around better play spaces in, in Philadelphia. She had started her own company. Um, and, uh, and so I was sort of supporting her in, in developing the drawings for that project and getting that project off the ground. And then um, I left the, the, the office that I was working for to join her full time after that. So Ari, uh, in the last week, I've picked up a new phrase as I try to expand my universe as an arborist, which is green gentrification. And I suppose another term very close to that is climate equity. Can you talk a little bit about how your work at Hinge Collective is keeping those concepts in mind and maybe even the better starting places? Can you talk, tell our audience just exactly what green gentrification is and, and the concerns that it raises? Sure. It is definitely something we think about a great deal. Green gentrification, much like other types of gentrification, is you know whenever there is a, an improvement uh, in quotations that happens, there's always the danger of that the thing that you are doing will, um, will cause a change in the neighborhood that will then create some kind of displacement. There are many things that on the face seem like really wonderful ideas, like uh, you know public art as an example, but, but sometimes they can lead to a renewed interest in, in a place that can spark a change uh, that can lead to the displacement of a community that is already there. Whenever you are doing anything in a neighborhood, you have to first think about the principle of doing no harm. And there are many ways to do, to do harm. It seems like a simple thing, but it, it actually can be quite complex. Yeah, so we want to raise canopy by 30%, basically as quickly as possible. Uh, and I was starting to talk a little bit while ago about how this tree planting thing, canopy restoration in black and brown poor neighborhoods is a lifesaver. Um, you very thoughtfully sent some articles over and I read about Richmond, Virginia and the disparity of uh, lifespan of age 63 in the low canopy, no canopy neighborhoods of Richmond, Virginia versus 83 years of age in, in the neighborhoods of Richmond that have green space, parks, and street trees. All of us in Philadelphia and all of us that love big cities want to see that canopy restored, but at the same time, safeguards need to be in place to protect longtime residents. Yes. I, I do want to put a little bit of an asterisk on, on, those, on those studies that, that show those correlations between tree canopy and health lifespan in that, you know, there's definitely a correlation. And I believe that there is a causal relationship as well. But there are many other, trees are often an indicator of investment. And sometimes the tree is, is following where the, money, where the money is and where the investment is and where communities are, are privileged, to be honest. And so there are piling up of factors that can happen. So can you give an example of that, Ari? In a neighborhood that may have fewer trees, 
that neighborhood may also experience a number of other factors. And in fact, they usually do because the trees cost money to plant, they cost money to maintain, they cost money to manage. And so having a tree canopy is, is something that is, it's, a, it's an infrastructure that is, must be supported in the same ways that other types of infrastructure need to be supported. And when there is no investment in that infrastructure or little investment um, from a municipality or the ability to maintain that from, the pri from private residents, then there's also tend to be the same places where people may have poor access to healthcare. Um, it may be the same places where um, people are facing, you know, high unemployment or discrimination in other types of ways, and that that all sort of roll up into that lifespan. And so we know that trees have great benefits. We've we've had you know a number of scientific studies showing the mental health benefits of trees. We know that they clean and filter air, but there are also these all these roll-up factors, and trees are really kind of an indicator of where, where communities may be, be supported already. Sure. Well, you know, I, after reading some of those articles, um, it got me thinking about the marketing strategies of companies and how they have communities labeled A, B, and C. And... I always kind of laugh because we lived in what we classify as a B community where there'd be less money coming into us than there would be A communities, which are the wealthy communities. And it turns out that our community was pretty darn wealthy because everybody in the community had a second home. But we were classified as B community. Whether it had anything to do with ethnicity, which I think it did, mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we see these models that keep getting used over and over again. Um, these C communities, which most people think are comprised totally of Black and Hispanic and people of color, but they also have a large number of whites that are very poor. And uh, the streets many times are very narrow or there was old industry there where there wasn't a lot of ground to plant anything. Mm -hmm. So uh, now that some of these places have become derelict because the the actual properties have... Um, companies have left, gone bankrupt, or have been forced to, to leave, uh, we see some of these open spaces. And this is where we really should be concentrating our focus on being able to build parks in old industrial lots that certainly could use uh, refacing, but also they're toxic sites too. So planting things that would be non-edible, but making it into a park would be far safer for a community than to upend all that soil and those airborne toxins to make a park. And yet it's not being done. Or if it is being done, it's being done on a very limited basis. Yeah, I mean, Eva makes some good points, Ari. And, and I know you're background in both architecture and, and arboriculture, which is a terrific base to move forward with, with your work with Hinge Collective. With what Eva was just suggesting, are you working along those lines of saying, okay, maybe the street tree is just not a fit? Do we need to refocus and get these tiny forests going in more regular uh, spatial placement? The answer to that much like the answer to a lot of these is, is it's complicated. <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, it's, sort sure. of, it's sort of not a, <laughs> it's not a, um, there's not like a one size fits all answer to that. And I, and I, and part of the reason for that is that there's not, all neighborhoods are different. And so 
you know, one of the things that, you know, that we acknowledge in, in all of our work is that everything that changes a neighborhood, even if it's, you know, an, an improvement to a neighborhood is needs to be bespoke to that neighborhood and driven by the needs, desires, and aspirations of those that live there. I get it. In other words, don't swoop in with a plan. Correct. That is the number one uh, problem that is that we have seen throughout city planning in the last century. Uh, we've learned a lot. You know, we've learned a lot of things that we've done very wrong. Some of those things were done intentionally with malice, and others were done by accident with the best intentions. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, let me just jump in here, Ari, because you pointed out something very important: the swooping in and the the idea of creating uh, malice, for example. Some places will actually make it easier on themselves by claiming eminent domain. And they'll just clear a whole area off. And if you listen to, if you listen, there was a, I think it was um, on NPR, they were talking about the community that used to live in and work in the University of Pennsylvania area mm-hmm. and how they just came and swooped in and just claimed eminent domain and took all the houses down. Because mm-hmm. it made it easier for them to do what they wanted to do. Yeah, eminent domain is is a pretty obvious and a pretty it can, can be kind of an egregious form of that. But there's it happens much more subtly in most places where the developer community who sees a potential opportunity and will will actually buy and hold land in dereliction with the purpose of reducing the values in in a place to acquire more and more of it. This happens, and uh, it's happening in Philadelphia, and we're seeing sort of the next phase of that, which is this really kind of rampant development in in Philadelphia in a way that I think is providing a a new tax base to the city, and and I I think that the the city is reluctant to sort of pump the brakes on it, but the people living in communities have, have had enough. Where where this is where this has been taking place, and it's it's not a secret, and it doesn't feel subtle to them. And so, you know, one of the things that we we want to be able to do here, also with the tree plan, is, is acknowledge that development needs to have have some parameters put on it and some protections, so that we can we can work to try to avoid the, as much displacement as possible. And I, I think that the city is getting there. I think that Philadelphia is getting there. I think other cities are starting to get there as well. But there's still a lot of work to be done in order to, to curb that. You know, back, back to your point about the sort of grading, the, the various gradings of communities. You know, up until up until recently, nobody really heard about redlining and didn't really know what it was. And it's been getting a lot more attention lately. Um, but, you know, you were right. This has been going on for a very long time. And the, the type of rating a neighborhood with the intention of setting it up for real estate development has been something that is that was done by the government of by, by the federal government as part part of the the New Deal uh, when they were setting up for housing setting up the uh, homeowners loan corporation that was rating neighborhoods for suitability for giving home loans and so there there are lots of things that we need to undo but we have to acknowledge that they have happened first so we, I mean we we hope to acknowledge that as much as we can with with the with the tree plan. And call attention to that, and and have some 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 of the work we're doing be part of that un, undoing. Who will your audience be? And, and in fact, let me hold on that question and just jump back for our listeners worldwide. I'm sure there's going to be applications for every major urban area. Everyone has their pitfalls, their challenges, but 
you indicated hopeful signs here in our beloved city of Philadelphia. I guess I'm a little bit more of a cynic <laughs> with the zoning board. And uh, I live in a neighborhood that is under siege, not only with development, but really ugly development, thoughtless development. Yeah. And, you know, theoretically, I'm in a neighborhood where we should be able to raise the flag and say, hey, stop, stop, stop. But we have a zoning board that green lights everything. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I think that there needs to be more mindfulness about how things are designed, that, you know, we keep some of the old designs and makes neighborhoods look more stable than mid-century home next to an ultra-modern building, and there's nothing to tie it together. Nothing. Uh, and not even a tree to tie it together. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I we can we can we can absolutely debate the merits of of various design styles and and you know uh, codes that that dictate design styles. I think that the the key thing to to keep in mind is that we you know cultural assets should be preserved and opportunistic predatory development that that does not support the longevity uh, and and sustainable growth of a community is is what we need to be curbing. Development can have a, can play an incredibly crucial role in the expansion of the the urban forest. You know, as the major agents of change in cities, you know, we can we can piggyback on that. We can use this interest in development and this investment in development as a way to uh, invest in our urban forest. Developers are you, Hal. You asked kind of like who was our who was our audience for for the tree plan, and uh, you know, one of our audiences is is developers. Another audience, and really more of a partner, is um, is the planning commission. Another audience is the is the nonprofit community that supports tree planting, and of course, parks and recreation. And last but not least, at all, is the citizenry of Philadelphia, who we absolutely need the support of in order to execute this plan and to integrate forests into the city in a way that best supports people where they live. We we've actually met with developers. We have we had a developer focus group. Many of them were very amenable to new ways of looking at trees, new ways of regulating. They're always looking for more flexibility, obviously. And I think that there's they're they're willing to accept a cost for that flexibility. And so, you know, one of the things that we are we are looking at doing is is updating policy in a way that we can capture value to implement a more equitable forest. So we can we can capture value by having more trees planted as part of development on site. Um, we could also capture value by having a fee and loop program so that we can plant trees in places that need them the most, um, which may or may not be a place that's experiencing high development. I want to back up and put this into context because we really didn't talk about the article that Frank Coomer wrote recently about tree equity. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on our podcast, because your company was selected to do the 10-year plan for the city of Philadelphia. And so our listeners understand that context uh, as to why we're talking about development. I think it's really important that all cities have 10-year plans and some type of tree plan and how it's going to look. That's crucial for uh, future development. So I, I just wanted to preface that. Yeah, thank you for setting that context. That That is important. 
and all of a sudden it, it does seem like this age-old uh, line in the sand is getting a little bit more of a reawakening and illumination and scrutiny because it's big bad developers on one side and tree huggers with green thumbs on the other side. And Ari, it sounds like you were beginning to articulate with your focus group that there was some positive response amongst developers. You know, I have a sense of the profit margin uh, that developers have the luxury of when they're doing these projects. You know, uh, I don't see them going under. And um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about their receptivity to the, the planting schemes and what might be proposed for the work that they're doing as they, you know, move into new neighborhoods. Well, first we listened to them and asked them about how they felt about the current tree policy and the, the way that it's executed, enforced, and reviewed. And what we heard overwhelmingly is that it, it's not particularly clear and it's not consistently enforced. And so a lot of times they end up uh, actually spending more money on the, the review process and redesign of projects uh, to, to get through the review process. And, you know, that's that's money that's literally just going down the toilet. You know, that's that's value that's that's just being lost from, from a lack of efficiency. And so yeah. there was a lot of receptivity to having a system that was more clear-cut and had more consistency and more flexibility, even if it was something that turned into something that cost them more money on the, on the face of it, that may save them money with respect to efficiency. And so they were very open to that. They, they liked the idea of a potential fee and lieu option. You know, currently there are quite a few loopholes and a fee and lieu option would allow us to, to close some of those loopholes. You know, there isn't, there isn't a fee and lieu option right now in Philadelphia, where there is in many other cities. And I, and I believe that it is, it's working. For those cities, and we've we've talked to um, to a number of folks who who have been using those systems and have been seeing capturing value, um, where we can also be capturing that. Well, don't you think also that when you have a plan for a city and you can articulate where you want to head and how you can support the builders and developers, that everyone in the end gains not only them with maybe the cost of the housing, the price that they actually settle on at the end, or whether it's, you know, seeing a successful development in a community that also rises in its overall appearance. And they can point people to that as saying that was a successful development of ours. And, you know, I think that the, the incorporation of, of trees into development was something that I think where a higher value was was placed on about a hundred years ago. I live in I live in West Philadelphia, and, and those are some very old trees, and many of them were very clearly planted with the houses. And I think that there was a there was an expectation from a home buyer that there would be a tree in front of their house. Where I, I'm not sure that that's the case now, and I, and I think that part of that has to do with the market and, and the, the culture that, that is developed around the housing market. Um, and that's something we can, we can change by showing some good examples, even if those, some of those good examples come through, a, through a, an update in policy, I think that there will be, there will be some, some better examples that will kind of shift the demand for what a, a, a desirable home might look like. 
Coomer's piece did a good job illuminating some homeowners uh, and the headaches that they have with their street trees. The the classic uh, heaving sidewalks from the uh, Bradford pears and fruit drop, all those nuisances, quote unquote, that uh, trees will offer homeowners and ultimately expensive removals. How is Hinge addressing that? Or, or even what are your personal thoughts? How do we move forward and sell trees to communities where there's going to be some pushback? We spend a lot of time, you know, also listening to people in many different neighborhoods in Philadelphia about the headaches that they're experiencing. That is the number one first thing that needs to get addressed is reducing the burden of trees or even removing the burden of trees. You know, we are, we are absolutely looking at as many different types of recommendations as we can to reduce that burden, either through, you know, public support or nonprofit partnership support. You know, there are a number of avenues that we can, we can go down. But specifically, we are, we're looking at the, the places where trees are needed the most and where the headaches and the hardship is the greatest, where we can provide that support as part of our recommendation. The community that we lived in, our township demanded that there be some kind of money for maintenance. Mm-hmm. And I know in Europe, it's the same way. You can have a great plan, but if you don't do a cost analysis of what it's going to cost you to maintain a property or a design or a landscape, then you might as well not put it in if you don't have the money to do it. So we started a nonprofit organization to uh, maintain the trees along Easton Road corridor from um, Arcadia University down to, down to Keswick Village. And uh, we got people who donated, people, people, businesses who wanted to donate. And that money was put into an account for future maintenance. Even though the trees were young, we were able to, whatever we were able to do from the ground, we did. And I think that there is a good way to, or a model that you could actually use where money is constantly going in to fund maintenance of trees. If they're giving us X amount of money from a beneficial standpoint, there should be money going in for maintenance. And we know from the uh, coronavirus last year that we started to clean more frequently and we we started doing more repairs on things because we knew that if things weren't cleaned and, and kept more meticulously, that there was a higher risk of infection. Well, it's the same thing with trees. That If we don't maintain, there's a higher risk of failure. And yet we somehow think that it's okay just to neglect. And it's not. This is how we've kind of gotten in the position that we're in now with, you know, neighborhoods being neglected over time, trash not being picked up, streets not being swept because we want to save money. But in the long run, anytime you want to cheapen things, you make it expensive. And if it's, if it's not done now, it pushes and kicks the can down the road and makes things that much more expensive down, down the pike. And I think that your company's mission is extremely important to planning because you now have yourself who's not only an arborist who understands what a tree needs but you're also a landscape architect and your partner is an architect so you're working with three things that are 
incredibly valuable and understanding them and working together makes the entire system work better. Yeah, and one of the most important parts is, is understanding how all those different systems do work together. And, and your point about the maintenance is, um, is absolutely spot on. Um, and that, that really kind of goes back to the trees being, being a burden. You know, trees do require, they do require maintenance. The Parks and Rec is not fully funded in order to, to even have sort of the, the, the necessary reactionary force to, to manage down trees and roads, um, things like that. They're woefully understaffed and underfunded. You know, one of the things that we hope to call attention to in this plan is is that fact, and also to call attention to the fact that there isn't there there is not the the resources to to do proactive planning and to have a, a proactive maintenance cycle. You know, we we can't have a forest that is uh, is unsupported because we lose the trust of every of every person in Philadelphia. Every person that we rely on to accept a free tree in front of their house or to accept a free tree and even in their yard, we need their trust that there will be some kind of plan and that they will be maintained. And so that's really the first order of business is to make sure that that trust is there. One of the things that we've heard over and over again is, you know, not all canopy is the same. Um, not all canopy has the same value. There are trees that are bad ambassadors for trees. Trees that are, you know, growing in vacant lots and in alleys that no one is responsible for, that nobody planted, that are causing a great deal of damage to people's homes and properties, and they're incredibly expensive to remove. In some in some neighborhoods, the, the canopy may actually need to, to the canopy cover may need to go down before it can go up, so that we can build the trust back up for people to be able to trust that the, the new canopy is going to be maintained as well. We've gone almost uh, three quarters to the podcast and haven't really had a tree nerd moment, but uh, let's do it. <laughs> an arborist buddy uh, who grew up in the swamp poodle neighborhood, 32nd and Allegheny, yeah, talked about visiting his old neighborhood last week to look at a street tree for a lady and wound up in her row house backyard looking at polonias yeah. and was able to recall that back in the day, that's where the outhouses were. Oh my God. All the honeypots. And there is a microcosm back there of polonia in multiple neighborhoods. And of course there's other species like that as well. But the one I'm recalling in particular was a polonia that was spread over no less than six row house backyards. Wow. The point was alleys, you know, back in the 50s and 60s were the places that the kids played. Kids don't play in the alleys anymore. It's dead, it's a dead zone. So vegetation, as we know, has reclaimed big expanses of row house backyards with costly removals. I can't begin to imagine how some of these jobs would would get done. But interesting point, yeah, that there is canopy. You can grade your canopy, right? There's good canopy, and then there's destructive canopy. Going back to that, you know, Polonia, if you understand a tree's purpose and its functionality, in the case of Polonia, for example, it is a deconstructionist plant. 
It is, its purpose is to be deconstruct, uh, deconstruct rock walls, rock, in, intense rock. And in fact, even in China, it grows out of the Chi Great China Wall. But if you wow. were to see it in its native habitat, it would be growing on top of a rock sheet and working its root down into a crevasse and hunting for water. And its purpose is to pull up water. And so that when its canopy drops its leaves, it's actually creating an organic material for other things to come in later because it is a first successional plant. Mm -hmm. And that uh, purpose of bringing up water, or as Hal was saying, they were in honeypots. Well, sure, because it's bringing up all that water from those old latrines that are there. I mean, it makes perfect sense that they're actually doing deconstruction before we can actually go in and construct or build, as you say, Ari, the woodland that is most desirable. It's actually doing some of our work for us. And so I, I don't like to villainize trees in that regard, but I have, to, I have to bring that up so that we all know that we all have a purpose on the earth and so do trees. Good point. It's, uh, any anytime anyone disparages a uh, an ailanthus, uh, somebody always brings up the tree grows in Brooklyn, which was which was an ailanthus. And uh, you know, I think that everybody's got their own personal relationships with trees. And and you know, there could be a there could be a massive pin oak that's on your sidewalk that's lifting it. That could be the bane of your existence. You know, we we can't necessarily uh, villainize sort of the the, the social benefits of, of trees based on their species, you know, we kind of just have to listen to listen to people's relationships to trees and, and understand, you know, which ones have value, have social value, have have environmental value, and which ones are are causing harm or creating a burden. Yeah. And then of course Polonia does, you know, in the city of Philadelphia that if you see it growing in the chimney, yeah. it's down into the basement and it's a takedown, right? Yeah. Uh, because of its nature of being a deconstructionist, yeah. uh, you know, Atlantis is the same way. So in order, in order for you and your partner to create these wonderful spaces, there's a lot of work that has to get done ahead of time. Tons of work. That creating a value so that you can create that valuable forest as you're talking about. Well, Ari, here's, here's a little mind exercise, thought exercise. Ari Miller... Alexa, 20, 30 years from now, you're in your 70s. As you look, look back at your career and you look back at the impact that Hinge Collective made in 2021, 2022 with, with the report and the fact-finding that you're doing, paint a picture about how some of these neighborhoods, how they were influenced in a positive way by the due diligence and investigative work that you guys are doing now. I hope that can can be able to drive drive through the city and not be able to tell the difference between uh, you know a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood or a Hispanic neighborhood or uh, a wealthy neighborhood by the trees. I want to be able to to go through go through our our city and and have it um, have everybody be able to share what I what I enjoy, what I love about my neighborhood in West Philly, which is feeling like living in a in a forest. 
and it centers me. And I know from the feedback that we've heard that, that it has incredibly stabilizing and emotionally restorative properties to be living among trees. I just, I want that for everybody. I hope that's what we get. I, I also hope that our, our plan, our plan looks like, you know, sort of a starting point. It looks like some people that were at the very beginning of, of understanding how to do engaged planning and that it looks like a insufficient, that, that the plans of the future will make this plan look like it's, um, like it didn't do enough. Wow. Good stuff. That's heavy. <laughs> It sounded almost like it sounded like a prayer. I, I liked it. <laughs> it is. It is a prayer. It's a putting it into the universe. Well, Ari, do you have a favorite tree or top two or? Oh man, you know I I do. It changes. It's like it's like when you ask uh, like when you ask a, a musician what their favorite song is, they'll be like, "Well, this is it this week." Beach trees are always in my top. I love beach trees and I love um, black gums. I, I guess I'm a I'm sort of an acid forest kind of guy. Acid forest, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I I love I love beech trees because they feel like giant animals and uh, they they branch well. They they set up like concrete when they when they die. They're just like so everything about them is tough. And yeah, uh, that's a good point. <laughs> and they're they're really resilient too. I love beech forests in the wintertime. Oh, because yes. of their leaves, the, the ghostly leaves that are left on the young trees. Yeah. And, and, and just their, their whole form is just is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I love the fact the way they have babies growing underneath them and how they drop their lower branches so that they accommodate those mm -hmm. progeny that start springing up from their roots. The, the nut set on beach is really heavy. Uh, this season, mm. and I ate my first raw beech nut because we had a, a guest earlier on in the year who's from Germany who said she would eat them on occasion, and it, and it was fun. It was satisfactory, kind of like <laughs> a raw filbert, something like that. I said, I've never eaten one. I should try. No, I hadn't either. But there was a they were laying on the sidewalk, and I thought, well, let's do this. <laughs> time to taste. It's time to taste. You know. You know. I think that the, the, the beach is one that not a lot of people mention or actually see in the city because no. of the type of soil that it needs. And it needs it, not, it needs to be undisrupted for 40 years before it will actually put down or put up babies coming off of its roots. It can't, mm. it can't be trampled on. Mm. So that's why when you see them and they're usually in remote places or places that are kind of hard to get to from a walking perspective. Yeah, I, I picked I pick two trees that are, they're, they're terrible street trees. <laughs> uh, and the Nissa, the Nissa that you were mentioning yeah. is a really good one for stream banks and yeah. wetlands. And it is a beautiful tree mm -hmm. if you're in a park setting. Yes, that's right. And so you're thinking park rather than uh, street tree, but that's fine. We're really happy with your collection. I just went right to to the forest, the forests that I, the natural areas that I like. I guess. Yeah, understood. Yeah, no, black gum is terrific, and there's I see more and more of, uh, or at least a handful of new introductions, green gables and things like that, with the terrific um, fall colors. Is the best glossy green leaves. Yeah, like like blood red. 
Wildfire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we wish you all the best with your work with the city of Philadelphia and your commitment for the 10 year plan. Uh, we're delighted that you could be on our, our podcast this week. You've imparted a lot of wisdom for our listeners and for ourselves. And we hope we ha- we can have you back. I, I would I would love to come back. I, I'll, I'll come back in in uh, in thirty years, and we'll we'll see we'll see how I did. All right, hold on. Let me see. I think we might have a. Do you have an opening? I'll have to get back. Okay. To you. We might have a little new technology though. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty fifty one. I will. Uh, Mercy. I'll send my I'll send my hologram invite uh, now. <laughs> One thing for sure, it's always going to be interesting on this planet. Never boring. Hopefully we're still here to, to, to see how interesting we get. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Thanks, Ari. Yeah, thank you, guys. a terrific guest. I really yeah. appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank mm-hmm. you.